Do you ever play that game Jenga? You know that game Jenga? Jenga, if you're not familiar with it, Jenga is this block game where you have this tower of blocks and each layer of the tower has like, it's like alternating. And the deal is every player takes a turn and they have to pull out one of those blocks, okay? And uh, trust me, it took a lot of self-control for me not to set that up up here for you. But then I thought if I got it to a certain point, like if you're playing the game, it could be distracting because you get it to a certain point in the game and what happens to the tower? It starts to like, it starts to just waver a little bit. It gets instable, right? Uh, Or unstable. There's instability in the tower. And then like every person's turn, there's more angst in it. And for some of us that are already prone to anxiety, this is not the game for you, okay? Just find another one. But inevitably, somebody's going to pull one of those those blocks out and the whole tower is going to come down. And then that's how you lose the game. There's not a winner in Jenga. There's only a loser. That's how Jenga works. So God bless America. Okay. Uh, th- this game. In Jenga, though, the key, the key observation when you're going to pull a block is to just touch it. And if the tower starts to wobble, you know you're in a danger zone. Okay? And I'm just going to take that as an illustration for the spiritual principle we see on display in our passage this morning. Spiritual instability is a problem. Spiritual instability in our lives is a major problem. And so, just like with that Jenga tower, when things start to get shaky, wobbly, unstable, right, spiritually, we know, uh uh-oh, there's something wrong. We need to get to the bottom of that. We need to see what's going on. Because, Because what we see in our passage this morning is that when spiritual instability goes unchecked, it's going to lead to disaster. And so this morning, it's, it's, a ran, it's a seemingly random passage. Josiah's been king. Uh, now we have, uh, his, his, he's been killed in battle. Now Jehoahaz, one of his kids, is going to become king. And so, you know, you have this kind of seemingly endless cycle. We want to remember, though, as we, as we pick up this narrative, that there's a cumulative message here in really First and Second Kings that we've been building to. We've already seen the northern kingdom taken into exile. And basically, this morning starts the beginning of the end for Judah, where God has promised to judge them because of their sin. And so here with Josiah's sons, we see that judgment start to come to fruition. I want to go over the verses for you with you quickly, and then we're going to track back and just make a few observations, I think, that apply to our situation and what we're facing today. So in verse 31, we see the statement here clearly, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Now, if you, if you can remember, every time we're going through kings, when we get to a short reign, short reigns are usually bad news. Okay, three months, not a long reign. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah, the Jeremiah. We don't know. She was from Libna. Okay, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. Now, that evaluative statement that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done, it stings a little more this time because Josiah was so good. Do you remember? We had two weeks of him. You remember Josiah? He did so well. He didn't only, uh, you know, take out the, the high places. He, like, went to extremes, as, as T.J. reminded us in chapter 23 last week, that he went to extremes to make sure that those high places weren't rebuilt and those false altars were uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, violated so that they couldn't be used again and all of that. So Josiah had taken all these steps to ensure that the generation to come would continue his legacy of spiritual renewal and to seek after the Lord. And here we have Jehoahaz, who was Josiah's fourth son, actually his youngest son, 
he was declared king, and he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. And so we see this cycle of spiritual instability in Judah continue to just go down and down and down. Now there's a particular circumstance here. Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath to keep him from reigning in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 7,500 pounds of silver and 75 pounds of gold. That's a lot. In fact, it's a ridiculous amount. And what's going on here with Egypt, I'll show you just so you can have the historical context uh, in mind, but there's a bigger issue with Egypt at this time that's uh, important to the passage. Uh, So Josiah, Josiah actually died trying to stop Egypt from going in and attacking uh, Babylon. It's It's a long story. We don't have time for all the details. But at this time, Babylon is becoming the big dog. And Assyria was the big dog, and Assyria wanted to stay the big dog. So, uh, so basically, they teamed up with Egypt, and they were going to come here, and they were going to go to war with the emerging world superpower, Babylon. And Josiah got wrapped up in the middle of that, uh, siding with Babylon against Egypt. He died in that battle. And then his son, uh, his given name was Shalom, but he was renamed Jehoahaz, okay? He becomes king. And while he's king, uh, Egypt is still marching through the area, okay? And so this guy, Pharaoh Necho... He basically uh, uh, imposes his will on the land of Judah. And so in 33, you know, he imprisoned uh, Jehoahaz. That's why his reign was only three months. And he imposes this huge fine. Watch verse 34. The the aftermath of the Egyptian superiority goes on. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah, and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. So that's actually Josiah's second-born son, and so he changes his name to Jehoiakim. Why does he change his name? He changes his name to basically, it's a PR stunt, to, help, to make the people of Judah think that God, Yahweh, was on the side of the Egyptians, uh, so, which he wasn't, just so we're all clear. But, you know, it was like he changed the name to try to make that point. Necho then took Jehoahaz, the, the previous king, and went down to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoahaz dies down in in Egypt, and then his brother, Jehoi- his brother, formerly Eliakim, now Jehoiakim, he is now king. What's his job, though? He's a puppet king. His job is to collect taxes and give them to Egypt, which is basically what he did. Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but at Pharaoh's command, he taxed the land to give it. He exacted the silver and gold from the common people, each according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, daughter of Padiah. She was from Rumah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. If you read the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah ministered at this time. And in Jeremiah's ministry, Jehoiakim is the main bad guy king. He's the one that kills prophets. He's the one who burns scrolls of scripture. This guy is not a good dude. And so when we read again, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. We're just like, here we are back again to the same old song with a king failing to lead the people spiritually. I want to just draw your attention, though, here to the cumulative effect 
of these bad kings. And yes, we have a few good kings in the midst, but we continue to have a vast majority of bad kings. That continued instability, it's like the spiritual game of Jenga, and the tower's getting more wobbly and more wobbly from generation to generation. You get one good king, but he can't undo all this cumulative effect of spiritual failure. And so now it's really getting wobbly here. And what's going to happen? Well, spiritual instability is a recipe for what? For spiritual collapse. There's a point in the Jenga game where there's no turning back. And it's like, nobody's saving this tower. It's coming down. And spiritually, that's where Judah was. So Jehoahaz is king, right, for three months. He's th- he thinks, I'm going to follow, follow my father and stand up to Egypt. And that didn't work at all. Pharaoh Necho, like, flicked him with his finger, and that was done. And so he takes him captive, and he ends up dying down in Egypt. In the meantime, imposing a massive tax on the people. And then Eliakim, now Jehoiakim, is set up, and he's just a puppet for Pharaoh. And he imposes the tax and continues to impose the tax and basically just does whatever Pharaoh Necho wanted him to do. And he has a legacy of spiritual failure and absolute wickedness, right? All that spiritual instability is just leading to spiritual collapse, which at this point is inevitable. Again, this is the beginning of the end. I just want to encourage you, though, to think about this in terms of generational instability, okay? There's, a, there's like a generational spiritual whiplash going on that is kind of frustrating, isn't it? Like we had a bad king, and then whipping over here, we have a good king, and then we whip back over here, we have a bad king. And I just want to encourage you that your faith is your responsibility. And while you can't control the generations that came before you, you are responsible for your own spiritual health. And so, yes, you may come from an unbelieving family, which means if you've become a follower of Jesus, you have, you have swung the pendulum to the right direction in that sense. Or you may come, most of us probably come from believing families. But there's this recognition that we need to see that regardless of what our family was like in the past— What we need to be concerned about is how are we functioning spiritually today? Are we spiritually healthy today? Are we strong spiritually? Or are we like that wobbling Jenga tower? Spiritually unstable and therefore looking forward to spiritual collapse. A couple of application points on this idea. First of all, don't believe the lie that because your parents are Christians, you are too. Or grandparents for that matter. Sometimes we just get this sense when we're raised in the church, which is a huge blessing. More on that in a second, right? But to be raised in a believing family is a good thing. But two of Josiah's four sons here did not follow the Lord and led the, fam- led the nation in further spiritual decline and collapse. So you just got to recognize that even if you're raised in a, in a spiritual family, in a Christian family, that doesn't mean that you're forgiven of your sin. That doesn't mean that you are spiritually healthy. So you have to take responsibility for your own spiritual health. You will answer for your sins. Ezekiel 18 verse 20 reminds us of this. The righteousness of a person will be his, and the wickedness of a person will be on him. Like when you stand before the Lord, the Lord's not going to look to your parents or grandparents and give you spiritual credit. It's going to be on you. Where where does your faith lie? And so there's just a caution here, I think, about, again, that generational spiritual whiplash and just this idea that perhaps we might think, because I'm raised in a spiritual family, I'm good. You're not good until you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. And your overall spiritual health is your responsibility. So I'm looking especially here at younger people, okay? Teenagers, children, it is never too early for you 
to get serious about pursuing the Lord. It's never too early for you to say, you know what, I know my parents bring me to church, and frankly, I know that you, you guys don't have an option if you come to church. My kids don't have an option. Can I get an amen right here? Yeah, there's no choice. They have to come. They, I make them come for multiple reasons, right? So kids, I know that your parents might make you come to church, but there is a, uh, there's a moment here where you say, you know what, I see all these kings and how there was only a few good ones and many of them were wicked and they didn't follow their believing parents or grandparents and I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person that was handed the baton of the gospel in my family and I refused it. I said no. And so young people, Get serious. Get, get into God's word, right? Be serious about pursuing the Lord. Teenagers especially, right? It, it, there's a lot going on in your life as a teenager, but you will never regret pursuing Christ in your teenage years. Again, your faith is your responsibility. And when Jesus returns or when you die and stand before the Lord, your parents, your grandparents aren't going to be there to, to cover you. It's, the question is going to be, well, what have you done? Have you put your faith in Christ or not? Secondly, though, we also learn, kind of just as a, a, maybe a, a caveat here, family culture, like there's a lie that says, well, if, if everybody stands on their own, then it doesn't matter what our family is like. And now I'm thinking more about parents and grandparents. It's true that everybody stands before the Lord on their own, but your family culture is a major influence in your children's lives. And so it's important for you to recognize that normally speaking, most of the time, the avenue of discipleship runs through the family. And that happens in the church context, but it's God uses Christian families to impart the gospel to their children, and then that, that heritage gets carried on. It's not a guarantee that it will be carried on, but most of the time, that's normally how it is. And sometimes, I think especially in America, we get caught up as families just being American families and not being Christian families. And you just might ask the question, are we a distinctly Christian family? You know, there's just maybe, I just want to make sure that we're aware that that's an issue. And again, that's why intentionally in our ministry to families, we really want to encourage parents to be active in discipling their children and to say, yes, I'm going to take responsibility for seeking to pass that baton to my children, parents or grandparents, whoever it may be. A a godly family can be a blessing. Again, it's not a guarantee of faith, but often it's how God works in our lives. Okay, third, just in light of this this truth of of generational instability being a problem, I would just encourage you, no matter what age you are today, to commit to say, I'm not going to be that generation. I'm not going to be the generation that walks away from reform and continues to do evil like the previous generations past. I'm going to be the generation that stays faithful. I'm going to be the the generation that makes my faith my own, that gets serious about pursuing Christ. I'm going to be the generation that says, it's not going to go south on my watch. And I think there is that, that call here to not be the, these guys. You don't want to be Jehoahaz, not just because it's hard to spell. You don't want to be Jehoahaz because this is a bad spiritual legacy. You don't want to be Jehoiakim in so many ways. So be warned. Fourth, I just think here there's a warning against, against cheap spiritual PR stunts, like the changing of Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. Ooh, now he's really spiritual right? No, he's the worst. We're going to find that out next week. And so you just got to be careful in your life about using fake uh, PR stunts as a way to present that you're you're spiritually strong when you're actually not. So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about like banking on church attendance. Like, oh yeah, I show up at church, so I'm good. 
trust me, it's good for you to be at church. But if all you're here, if all you're doing here is just checking a box as a PR stunt, it's not going to do you much good. Uh, if you're, you know, sometimes it's, I wear a cross. I think wearing a cross can be a helpful reminder of, of Jesus' death on our behalf. But on the other hand, oftentimes people wear a cross just to kind of like have a spiritual thing on them. And it's not necessarily like, hey, I'm actually following Jesus. So you just got to kind of be careful that you're not just, you know, kind of adopting the trappings here rather than genuinely pursuing the Lord. Uh, again, Eliakim, his name, his name was changed. Like, to what degree he went along with it? He obviously did because he was, he was made king, and we'll see again next week how, you know, he was a, a, a really horrible leader, but he enjoyed that, that spot. So he, he went along with it. He wasn't concerned about the fact that it didn't really ref, reflect the truth of his heart, that he loved and pursued Yahweh. He didn't really care. He just wanted it to, to play good with the polling. So you might just ask, who am I trying to impress Right? Who is it that I, who am I trying to, to maybe influence to think that I'm really spiritual if I'm not? Uh, could, be, could be family, could be friends, right? Could be uh, significant others. There's all kinds of different places where we struggle with that. And then I think finally in this section, there's just also this warning to unbelievers. So if, if you don't have spiritual faith, right, if you haven't trusted in Christ, you just need to know that that spiritual instability, it it must lead to spiritual collapse. There is, no other, there is no other destination for that road. So if you're not following Jesus, and you're going, well, I mean, I know I don't follow Jesus really, but like I could throw him a bone by going to church every once in a while, or, you know, my family does, so I'm probably good, and you know that you, you're not following Christ, you haven't trusted Christ, you need to understand that regardless of how, how often you change your name or how often you show up at church occasionally, that you are headed towards spiritual collapse. It's not, that's, that's a rough road. And so there is a warning here to say, hey, hold on, just be careful. Just know that when that tower is wavering, when, that's, when that faith is not legit, that that's a big problem and you need to know where you're going. Sometimes we excuse unbelief in our own lives. We just kind of like excuse it. Well, my family's got me covered there. No, they don't. Well, I've shown up enough. Pastor Ryan will put in a good, good word for me on the bat phone to heaven. There is no bat phone to heaven in my office. Okay? That doesn't exist. Some of you are shocked. It's okay. I still pray for you, but there's no bad phone. Right? I, I, I can't do that. I can't step in and protect you from the wrath of God. So it, that, you're, on, you're on your own there. And so often we'll excuse, we'll excuse our unbelief and just think, well, you know, I'm around Christianity. Isn't that good enough? It is not good enough. Just ask Jehoahaz or Jehoiakim. Now, it's not just about generational spiritual instability here. It's also about worship instability. Just tr if we track back, just think with me about this. Actually, we'll have Jeremiah help us. Uh, Jeremiah 2, and I think I have this verse for you. Jeremiah 2 and verse 36. In Jeremiah, there's this recognition that Israel and Judah's dependence on Egypt and their relationship to Egypt was a problem. And so oftentimes, they thought, oh, Egypt will be our savior. and They'll rescue us from our, from our enemies. And of course, they couldn't depend on Egypt. And Jeremiah actually prophesies this little scene here. And, and, and generally speaking, he prophesies this little scene. This is Jeremiah 2, verse 36. But he says, how unstable you are, constantly changing your ways. You will be put to shame by Egypt, just as you were put to shame by Assyria. Jeremiah says, hey, people of Judah, make up your mind. Will the real Judah please stand up? 
you're so unstable. This week you trust the Lord. Next week you don't. This week you're following Josiah. The next week you're not. Like, you're so unstable. You're constantly changing your ways. You think that there are other solutions, like relying on Egypt or relying on Assyria or Babylon or whoever, but you're going to be put to shame. But specifically here, note Jeremiah references Egypt. And this Egyptian judgment by Pharaoh Necho was in, in a very real sense a fulfillment of this prophecy of Jeremiah, where they had relied on Egypt in generations past for help. They were looking to Egypt to rescue them. And Isaiah, by the way, same point. Northern kingdom as well. You're relying on Egypt, and it cannot save you. I just want to note here the connection between this judgment by Egypt and the instability, the constantly changing ways of the people of Judah. Now, I'm going to call that worship instability. Worship instability. There is a high tax to pay for bouncing back and forth between pursuing God and pursuing self, between pursuing God and pursuing sin. And in this passage, there was literally a high tax to pay. Did you catch that? I don't know if you're up on like gold and silver values, but 75 pounds of gold, that's a lot. In an ancient Near Eastern context, it was more than a lot. It was like an unfathomable number in some senses. And so here, Pharaoh Necho was like, I think he was sitting around, and he was like, hey, he was talking to his buddies, you know, like pharaohs do. And uh, he's like, hey, wh- what should we tax Judah? And one of the guys was like, 75,000 pounds of silver and 75 pounds of gold. And he was joking. And Pharaoh's like, let's go with that. Yeah, that sounds good. And so they just impose this. And so then what happens with Jehoahaz and then Jehoiakim, they impose the tax. But notice, if you just caught, caught it in the text, it was levied against the common people. He wouldn't let them just pay it out of like the king's accounts, which they couldn't have covered it anyway. But he didn't just let them pay it out of the king's accounts. He oppressed the common people. So the whole nation is suffering. Why? Because when you bounce back and forth between trusting God and not, when you pursue the path, the lifestyle of spiritual instability, this is where you end up. You're going to pay the tax. And the people tolerated it. The people were okay with the spiritual failures of their kings. Not everybody, but the majority were. And so there's, again, a warning here about this worship instability. I think that that, uh, idea from Jeremiah gives us a grid to really interpret what's going on here in 2 Kings 23. How unstable you are. Now, what is spiritual collapse actually going to look like if... Spiritual instability is a recipe for spiritual collapse. What does it actually look like today? Well, first of all, it could just be straight-up apostasy, where it was never real faith in, in, the, in the first place. And it might be that, again, you're just pretending. And so apostasy means you just reject the gospel. You're like, nope, not doing the Jesus thing. I'm out. And, that's, and again, it's not faith. It never was real faith. But that could be where this, this, this collapse is headed. Or it could be, in other circumstances, more a temptation for believers, that because of spiritual instability and worship instability, right, bouncing around back and forth, we give in to temptation too much. Look, if we're going to be honest, everybody struggles with some measure of spiritual instability, where some days we worship God and we follow God and we pursue God, and then other days we don't. And frankly, sometimes it's half the day we pursue God, and then the other half of the day we don't, right? But when that happens, what's, what's the cost? What is the collapse? The collapse could be giving into temptation. If you're too squirrely, if your tower is shaking way too much, it will fall. And that means that you may make compromises that you would never thought you would have made on a Sunday morning, 
I'll never do that, Pastor Ryan. I'll never give in to that sin. But man, if you are unstable in your worship, if you're bouncing around here and there, if it's I'm chasing God, but then I'm chasing money, or I'm chasing God, but now I'm chasing girls, or I'm chasing God, but now I'm chasing grades, or I'm chasing God, but now I'm chasing all this other stuff, right? If that's your lifestyle, you, your tower is shaking. And there's, there's a warning here. You could be headed for that collapse of giving into temptation. Another aspect of spiritual collapse is passing on that legacy of weak faith or no faith. Again, everybody stands on their own, but we have an influence on those who come after us. And you just have, cumulatively, again, pull back. First and second kings. If there were more good kings, maybe we wouldn't have gotten here. I think that's part of the, the uh, agenda of the authors. If there were more kings who actually walked in the ways of their father David, maybe we wouldn't have ended up here, specifically in exile. And so, again, if you're asking, well, how should I take this and run with it? I think a big part of this is saying, I want to, as far as it depends on me, be a positive spiritual influence on those who come after me. I, I want to I step up for that. Spiritual collapse looks like failing in that mission. And again, instead of passing on a baton of strong faith, you're passing on weak faith or no faith. You know, it's so funny. Um, our kids know what matters most to us. And there's, often there's no fake in it. Maybe, parents, there's just a moment there where we go, wait a minute, what am I communicating to my children that's important? Now, how do we avoid spiritual instability? Okay, let's, if we buy the, the Egypt you know, situation where Egypt came in as God's judge temporarily here, uh, kind of a little precursor to the Babylonians, but that judgment was because of their worship instability, that they were bouncing around worshiping, you know, who knows what, rather than worshiping God consistently and regularly, right? So then there's this, this question of, okay, well, how do we avoid spiritual collapse? How do we strengthen that tower? How do we avoid spiritual instability? In short, I would say the answer is the church. And I'm getting that straight out of Ephesians 4. I gave you these verses in your bulletin because I think they're important this morning. But God provides for the church. He provided for the church and the apostles and prophets. And he provides for the church and pastors and teachers, but also with the saints doing the work of the ministry, right? He provides for the church. And what do we do? We build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Maturity, strength there, right? Growing into that. That's what the design of the church is for. But note how Paul says at the conclusion of this section in Ephesians 4, he says, Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by waves, and blown around by every wind of teaching. Just imagine that Jenga tower swaying in the wind. And the waves are going to hit you. Political waves. Can I get an amen? Yeah, those waves hit, and they're still coming. And so you're going to get hit by a political wave. It might push you this way. And then you're going to get hit by a financial wave, and it's going to push you this way. And then some new teaching is going to come in about, oh, yeah, now all of a sudden, if you, you know, this is some new aspect of Christianity that nobody ever found before, and it's going to blow you this way. And everybody's going to be doing this, oh, that's this cool website, this church, and we're going to blow you that way. And then the wave's going to come in of sickness, and that wave's going to hit you, and you're going to, and all this stuff. And you just get that image of immaturity, spiritual instability, and you're just like a ping pong ball, just getting knocked around. And Paul says the design of the church is to prevent that from happening. 
God has gifted us with each other so that together in unity we grow and mature as believers. So that when the political wave hits, we're not blown around, we stand strong. Meaning we trust God. And when the financial wave hits, we stand strong. And when some new wacky teachings crops up, we stand strong in the gospel. We're not blown around by every new teaching. We're not being tossed around by the waves of life. We are mature in Christ. And that maturity happens together. And so it's interesting. I think if we're talking about spiritual instability and how to avoid it, we have to talk about valuing the church. Commit to and stay in a strong, healthy church. And again, I would just encourage young people to think in those terms. That especially when you transition out of high school and you finally get to do everything you want and you're totally free and you know everything, which that happens, by the way, when you graduate from high school, just so you know, you actually know everything. It's how it works. But when that finally happens, don't use your college years as an excuse to avoid committing to a strong church. I got to tell you, some of the most transformational and influential relationships spiritually in my life happened when I was at a church for a short period of time during college, but somebody told me I should join the church, and so we did. And it was like, I was only there for a couple years. But man, God, God, God caused us to grow during that time. And you think, oh, I'm only going to be there a year or two. I don't, it's not that important to, to commit. It's not that important to join. Let me tell you something. Without a strong church to back you up, you will get blown around. Or maybe that's a bad habit that has led into the rest of your life. Maybe you graduated from high school, and now you're a long way from high school. You know what I'm saying? Some of us can barely remember those days. That's why they sell yearbooks, okay? Because as the years go by, you don't remember it. So, you know, we're, we're way past those days. But maybe our attitude towards the church was, the church is like an optional extra spiritual thing when I have time. If that's your attitude, your tower is shaking. Because the only protection we have against those waves and those winds of doctrine, right? The only protection we have is the church maturing together. You need help. Guess what? I need help. We need to walk together, and that provides extra stability spiritually. So commit to and stay in a strong church, which then leads to other uh, behaviors that help us stay spiritually stable, like committing to stay in God's word. How do we protect ourselves uh, when those waves are going to be hitting us, whether it's crazy doctrine blowing one way or whether it's just the circumstances of life? The truth of God's word helps us. So staying in a, in a healthy church helps us to then stay in God's word so that we're prepared for when that next wave hits. Or maybe it was an unexpected uh, gale, right, blowing from a different direction, but we've been in God's word faithfully. Again, that's not an individual agenda item that belongs to the church, but it benefits us individually. Another way we can avoid spiritual instability is by committing to pursue God with all that we are and with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that, again, that's a function of being in the church. So we're in the church together, and what do we do? We encourage one another to pursue Christ, just what Paul says here in Ephesians 4. So we, we, can, we consider how can we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does that look like? And we talk about it together. And when we struggle with that, we encourage one another to stay on that path and to keep pursuing the Lord. And that's a faith-driven pursuit, but it's a pursuit that says, I want to love God with all that I am, not, not just with one little corner of my life. 
that kind of serious pursuit of the Lord must lead to spiritual stability. Right? That, that must strengthen your spiritual health overall. And again, it's a byproduct, it's a function of being in the church. We need each other to pursue God. We need each other to stay faithful. So listen, spiritual instability is a recipe for spiritual collapse, but we don't have to live with that. Really, that's the function of 2 Kings 23 here at the end. The authors are saying, you don't have to be this generation. You don't have to suffer under Egypt's oppression. You, you don't have to spiritually be, be bouncing around a victim of your circumstances all the time. You can do better. In fact, we must do better. And so that calling to do better is a calling to pursue God with all that we are together in the context of the church. The fact is, Egypt never could save Israel or Judah. And there was cruel irony in the fact that Egypt was one of the, the means God used to judge Judah. It's like, yeah, you, 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 you look to them for salvation, but it's not going to happen. They can't save or rescue Judah. However, there was a time when a rescuer did come from Egypt. We're headed to Christmas, right? I know you're psyched. You should be, right? It's a wonderful time of year. In, in the, the Advent season, we will often read in Matthew chapter 2. We'll read about Jesus' birth, which is awesome. We'll read about the excitement of the incarnation, absolutely. And then we'll read that weird story about how Herod was trying to get rid of the, you know, the threat to his throne, and so he wanted to have all these little uh, you know, baby boys executed. And so do you remember where Joseph and Mary went with Jesus? Tell me, where did they go to find refuge from Herod when Jesus was just a little baby? Where did they go? They went to Egypt. And Matthew, in writing about that in Matthew 2, 13 to 15, Matthew remembers a prophecy in Hosea chapter 11 where the prophet Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son. And so there's this, uh, there's this, you know, here, well, let's, we can read it, yeah, in Matthew. So after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. Again, that's partially looking to Hosea chapter 11. I think he quotes it in the next line. Let's see if we have it. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. It's interesting. God, in his kindness, he does this. He says, they were tempted to look to Egypt for a rescuer. He says, well, the rescuer is going to, in one way, come out of Egypt. And it's almost like God says, I know that you're, you're, you're looking to Egypt in the wrong way, but God says, maybe I can just help turn that into looking for the right way. Maybe I can take that desire for stability, that desire for deliverance, and you're looking to the wrong source there, but maybe I can just help you out. And he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And wouldn't you know it, the greater son of David came from Egypt. In one sense. I, we were with the church in Egypt at one point, and uh, as I was spending time there with them, they love, they love Matthew 2, like big time, right? And Hosea, like they love these passages. You know why? Because frankly, it's like they don't want everybody to only read the bad news about Egypt in the Bible. <laughs> would you? Like if there was stuff about New Jersey in the Bible, it would, well, honestly, we'd be in trouble. Can I get an amen? I mean, you know, so they're going, they're going, did you know that Egypt was used to protect the Messiah and then that the Messiah came out of Egypt? I just love that. 
And here's Pharaoh Necho rolling through town, and he's taking Jehoahaz prisoner. He's going to die in Egypt, and he's renaming Eliakim, whatever he wants, and he's imposing his taxation on the land, and all that is judgment for sin. But, but in one sense, God says, but that's not the end of the story here. There is good that will come from Egypt for you. Because the greater son of David, Jesus the Messiah, he's the one, ultimately, the only one who can give us stability. He's the only one who can equip us to walk by faith in the midst of those trials that we're going to face. He's the only one who can provide genuine forgiveness for our failures to walk by faith. He's the only one who can protect us in the sight of God when we stand before him on the day of judgment. And you know what he says? He says, I came back from Egypt for you. To protect you. To provide for you. We said it earlier, but it's true. All of us, on some days, are shaky. All of us are bouncing around in certain times. And what we need is we need the reminder that there is rescue that came from Egypt. We need the reminder of what Jesus has provided for us. And again, if maybe you're excusing your unbelief, or you've never, you're in a Christian family and you've never actually chosen to pursue Christ on your own, heed the warning of 2 Kings 23 and look to Egypt. Not for the nation of Egypt to rescue her, but for the rescuer, rescuer who came out of Egypt. Maybe today's the day you stop making excuses and you say, you know what, I'm going to trust in Jesus. He's my deliverer. He died for my sins and rose from the dead. And now what am I going to do? Now I'm going to run with him. The gospel brings stability. You remember Matthew 7, where Jesus, most of us remember this from, our, from uh, children's church or Sunday school, where Jesus talks about uh, the, the wise man and the foolish man building their houses. And the wise man built his house upon the what? The rock. Because let the rains come. and Because the, the rains came and the floods rose. But the wise man, because he built his house on the rock, that, ho- that house was stable. It stood. Jesus is that rock. I wonder, have you built your house on the rock? You can't go 50-50 on it, ultimately. You have to make the decision. Which way am I going to live? Is Jesus going to be the convenient, occasional pursuit of my life, a PR stunt? Or is trusting in Jesus going to be the daily focus of my life? Am I going to be stable spiritually? Am I going to worship Him? Am I going to bounce around to whatever is popular? Spiritual instability is a recipe for spiritual collapse, but it doesn't have to be that way. You remember my friend Johnny Newton. He was a slave ship captain in the 1700s who became, he got saved, ended up becoming a pastor. He wrote a uh, really popular worship song of his day called Amazing Grace, right? So we know that. It's not the only, he wrote tons of poems actually, but um, so he was pastoring in London in the late 1700s. And there were some crazy political winds blowing around, especially in the 1760s, late 1760s, getting into the 1770s. Some of that had to do with some rebellious colonies on the other side of the Atlantic. But in that time frame, he wrote this letter to another pastor friend just talking about the craziness, craziness of their days. And I think I can just, it's helpful for us, this letter, because I know you're facing crazy days. Right? We are. And maybe if it's not that crazy at the moment, it, it could get crazy at any second. There's all kinds of stuff. His situation, it was primarily political. That was all the drama. But just listen to what he says and how he says it. 
given what we've looked at in 2 Kings 23 today. He says, Oh, sir, what a light does the gospel of Christ throw upon the world when our eyes are open to receive it. He says, Without it, all would be uncertainty and perplexity. Without, without Christ, all would be uncertainty and perplexity. But the knowledge of his person, blood, and righteousness, of the love he bears us, the care he exercises over us, and the blessings he has prepared for us, that knowledge gives peace and stability to the soul in the midst of all dangers and confusions. He's right. I don't know which wind is going to blow your way. I don't know which wave is coming for you, but I know this. Spiritual instability is a recipe for spiritual collapse, but it doesn't have to be this way. Because of our rescuer who came out of Egypt, we can have confidence and we can stand in the midst of the storm. True knowledge of Jesus does give peace and stability to the soul. What about you? Do you have that peace and stability today? Let's pray and ask God to give us that. Lord, we thank you for 2 Kings 23, here verses 31 to 37. We, we thank you for the historical lesson that's here of once again a rebellious generation who refused to follow a godly example in Josiah. But Lord, as we look at this historical scene and how you used Egypt to judge Judah, we see that there's more going on here. That yes, there's generational instability, but there's also, more crucially, worship instability. That the people were fickle. And Lord, we must confess that many days we are fickle. We don't love you above all else. And so, Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Help us to see the warning in spiritual instability. That when our, our spiritual tower is shaking, it's, it's a warning sign. There's trouble there. But Lord, we also ask for your help to see that there is a rescuer who came from Egypt. Lord Jesus, help us to see your provision for us on the cross, doing what we never could, providing forgiveness for our sins and equipping us to now live by faith and to truly build our house upon the rock to stand strong in you. And Lord, you haven't just rescued us, but you've rescued others. And so we now can enter into this community of the church and we can together mature in the knowledge of you by faith and we can mature as we read your word and we can mature as we seek to love you with all that we are. Lord, help us to be stable. Help us to find comfort in the gospel even when the unexpected wave or wind heads our way. Lord, help us to turn to you in faith when we fail. Help us to encourage others as we see them struggling. And Lord, help us to make the decisions that we need to make, encourage and conviction to stay faithful to you. Not because it earns our forgiveness, but because we've already received it. Lord, help us to be the stable followers of Jesus that you've called us to be. And we, we ask for your help by your spirit to equip us to do that even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.